chapter 9 and verse 20. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. And we, if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, guys are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you wave to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. He wants everyone to own a Bible and to know the Bible, and we certainly want that uh, as well. Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Immediately he, that is uh, Paul, uh, preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. And then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that very purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And he did not believe that he was a disciple, that he was born again. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of, uh, of Jesus. And so when he was with him at Jerusalem, uh, so he was with him at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus, back to his hometown. And then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and the Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the throne of grace, that, that sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross and his burial and his resurrection through faith in his name, has given us access to. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you care about our prayers, and thank you that you answer our prayers. And, Lord, it means the world to us to hear you, to hear your voice. Like never before in our lives, we, we need to hear your voice. There are a lot of voices in our heads, a lot of voices in our lives and in this world. And here's this time where... You get to just speak to us and everything else gets drowned out. And help us to hear your voice and through your word here this morning. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage of Scripture contains a very important record of the history of the Apostle Paul. And uh, some people consider history to be boring. Other people consider history to be irrelevant. I don't view it that way at all. History fascinates me. But a lot of people don't view history the way that I do. And it is an attitude of looking at history as being either boring or irrelevant, that attitude toward history that is uh, behind man's long history of simply repeating the same tragic mistakes over and over and over again, generation after generation after generation. And hence the famous sayings that 
are made concerning history. Sayings like those who do not learn from history are doomed uh, to repeat it. And we see that that's true in human history. Another one is one thing we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. The fact of the matter is, is that history is very, very important. It is very, very instructive and is never more important than when it has to do with God and it has to do with His work and the history of His people. Each of us as Christians needs to know something about the history of the Apostle Paul for at least two reasons. Number one, he's the most influential and significant Christian in the history of Christianity. And number two, he was chosen by the Holy Spirit in order to be the human author by the Spirit of the overwhelming majority of the epistles in the New Testament. And it always helps to know something about the human instrument behind uh, those epistles and understanding them. Let me take a moment just to recap a little bit the history leading up to this point in the narrative in Acts chapter 9, as we've learned in the last couple of weeks. Paul was saved while traveling from the city of Jerusalem to Damascus, and he was blinded as a part of his conversion. He was instructed by Jesus at that point of his conversion to go into the city of Damascus, and in the city he would be given further instructions concerning what he was to do. He was led by his companions into Damascus, led by uh, his uh, companions to the house of a, of a man by the name of Judas, and there he was for three days and three nights, blind, without eating or without drinking. Another man by the name of Ananias, a Christian within the city, was uh, Jesus came to him in a vision and told him that Paul was at the house of Judas and that he was to go there, lay his hands on Paul or Saul of Tarsus, and that he would then receive his sight and uh, be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Ananias went there, laid his hands on Saul. He immediately uh, received his sight once again. He received the baptism with the Holy Spirit, became water baptized as well, and then afterwards he ate and he was strengthened. Now notice the history as it continues in this passage that we're studying this morning. The Apostle Paul is who he becomes. His initial ministry was in Damascus in verses 20 through 22, and it describes his interaction, his teaching, the early days of his now being a new Christian and his ministry of the Word in those days. I think that it's important to realize as we see Paul in this early part of his Christian life that the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus is a condemnation of any rejection or unbelief by any Jew of Jesus as their Messiah both then and now. So often as Gentiles, we are intimidated in dealing with the Jews concerning the Scriptures, or we are intimidated in dealing with them concerning recognizing Jesus as their promised Messiah. 
I've been to Israel, had the privilege of doing that many times, and so often we feel automatically because they are Jews that they know the Scriptures better than we do, they know a lot of things better than we do, which is our assumptions that we shouldn't always uh, believe, but we feel intimidated in that kind of environment, that like they have a leg up on us, they know stuff that we don't know. And we can feel that it puts us at kind of a disadvantage in terms of sharing Christ uh, with a, a, a Jewish uh, person. After all, we don't know Hebrew, but Paul knew Hebrew. Uh, we don't know the law and the prophets as well as they do, we think to ourselves. But Paul did, and he knew it a lot better than they did. We tell ourselves we don't know their history and their culture like they, like they do, but Paul did. We tell ourselves we don't know their traditions. We don't know their oral traditions. It would later become the Mishnah. But Paul knew that, and he knew all of it, and he knew it in spades. And at the very first moment, he had opportunity. He went unintimidated and unashamedly and fearlessly to the Jews in Damascus, and he began preaching to them in their synagogues concerning Jesus. And there's this magnificent light that has gone on in Saul of Tarsus's life, in Paul's life. At that moment of conversion now, he starts to see everything very, very clearly concerning Christ. The veil that he talks about being over the mind and the heart of the Jew in 2 Corinthians, now that's been lifted from him. He knows what it is to try and read the Scriptures with the veil. He knows what it is to now read the Scriptures without the veil. Everything is becoming alive to him at this moment. And significantly... As he preaches in these synagogues, he focuses his, his attention completely upon Jesus. He's not dealing with peripheral issues. He's not dealing with traditions. He's not trying to fix any of that stuff. The great subject is what do they think of Christ? What do they think of Jesus? And that's where he focuses in on. And he focuses in on two great truths concerning Jesus. Number one, he focuses in on the fact, verse 20, that Jesus is the Son of God. And in doing this, he's not pussyfooting around, as we say. He takes the bull by the horn. And he knew like nobody else knew that the great contention, the great obstacle that the religious Jews faced in accepting Jesus as Messiah was this issue that Jesus continually claimed himself to be the Son of God. This was the major theological sticking point and the major reason for the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders. You remember on the morning that Jesus was crucified, he is there on trial before those religious leaders, the Jewish Sanhedrin. And the high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. And then he went on to say, more than even that, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The high priest, upon hearing this, immediately tore his robe, and he declared, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And all of the other religious leaders said, He is deserving of death. Because they rightly understood that when Jesus declared himself to be the Son of God, he was also declaring himself to be God the Son. 
And did the, did the Jews reject Jesus as the Son of God because they knew their Old Testament Scripture so well that they had a biblical foundation for it? No, Paul knew at this point in time in his life that they rejected Jesus as the Son of God because they didn't know their Scriptures as well as they thought they did. And as Paul begins to preach the Scriptures to them, he no doubt took them in terms of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God to that great prophetic psalm, Psalm 2, written by King David, where repeatedly in the psalm, the Son of God, the Messiah rather, is referred to as the Son of God. God declaring there in a conversation with the fa- of the Father to the Son declares, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nation for your inheritance inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. A conversation between within the Godhead of the Father and of the Son. Later in the same psalm, David writes, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, speaking of the Messiah, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. He might have gone as well to Isaiah in this regard. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah, by the Spirit of God, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here you have the Messiah being described as uh, the Son of God and then being described as mighty God as well. I think that Paul might have readily gone to the very first book In the Bible, the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, where God declares in that scene as it's recorded, we're told in verse 26, then God said, let us, plural pronoun, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Here you have a discussion within the Godhead. The Bible teaches that there's one God, but there are three persons that make up that Godhead. And it's a mystery, and the Bible declares it to be a mystery, that we will not be able to fully comprehend this side of glory And here you have this conversation at the very beginning of the Bible where God is speaking to God. There is an us. There's a plurality here. They're talking with one another, the members, uh, the personalities of the Godhead. The Jews look at the passage, and even to this day, they have no answer for it. The answer that they give because they don't want to believe that there is a God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is that what God was doing here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 is there was a conversation between God the Father and angels. 
But were we created in the image of angels? No, we're created in the image of God. And all they need to do is to go to the very next verse there, verse 27, where you have, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The next verse says, and so God created man in his own image. And we know we were created in the image of God, not in the image of God and angels. Here you have this speaking of the plurality within the Godhead. Paul goes on and he speaks to them not only of the fact that the Messiah would be the Son of God, but that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah in verse 22. And this wouldn't have been a hard thing for Paul to do. It isn't a hard thing really for anyone to to do. And he doubtless took them to Isaiah prophesying that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be born of a virgin. And then to Isaiah chapter 53 in Psalm, uh, that great messianic psalm, Psalm 22 of David, which describes the Messiah's gruesome death in horrific detail. And not only of his death, but the reason that he died. He died for our transgressions in order to provide us with forgiveness. And then no doubt on to Psalm 116 another psalm of David, to speak of the Messiah's resurrection from the dead, even as Jesus was risen from the dead. David wrote in Psalm 16:10, for you, speaking to God the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol. And then speaking of the Messiah, he said, nor will you allow your Holy One, that is Messiah, to see corruption. You will let him die. The prophetic scriptures speak of that. But you will not allow him to remain dead so long that his body sees corruption. Speaking of the resurrection of the Messiah. And on and on Paul could have gone because, in fact, Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies just like this in his first coming. I want you to notice in verse 22 that Paul, uh, the case that Paul made for both of those truths concerning Jesus, that he is the Messiah and he is the Son of God, was irrefutable. Uh, He proved it, we're told there, and he confounded the listeners. Their reaction was amazement, we're told there in the verse. They're amazed at what he's teaching. They're amazed at his conversion. They're amazed at the change in his life. What you have to remember about that synagogue that morning is this is the great Saul of Tarsus, This is the student of Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis in the history of the Jews. He has come from Jerusalem in order to arrest and persecute Christians. He walks into their synagogue. They hand him the scrolls. In other words, they turn over the morning service to him in order to now teach whatever it is this great rabbi wants to speak to us. And they're doubtless expecting the fact that he's going to go on some kind of a rant against Christianity and against Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah, and instead they get the exact opposite from them. They get an apologetic from uh, Saul of Tarsus, from Paul, for Christianity and for Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God, and it leaves them stunned. In terms of the progression historically here, there's a a gap of three years between verses 22 and 23. And we learn that from Paul's letter to the church at Galatia in chapter 1, 
where we learn apparently at that point he leaves the city of Damascus, he spends three years in the relative solitude, spiritually speaking, of Arabia. He goes out into the desert. He wrote to the churches in Galatia in this regard. I'll read it to you. You don't need to turn to it. He said, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia, and after that I returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and I remained with him for three days. So we know in this history, he goes to Arabia. He tells us that. And he tells us the period of time that he goes into Arabia for three years. Where it appears that during that period of three years, that the Holy Spirit deepened Paul's understanding of salvation. He didn't need to deepen Paul's understanding of Jesus as the Christ or the Son of God. He's got a very firm grasp on that. What he needs instruction on is the concerning salvation and the understanding that salvation always has been, even in the Old Testament, on the basis of grace through faith and not on the basis of works. Salvation has always been a gift and never something that we can earn. And up to this point in Paul's life, as he is in the religious community that he is in, at the time, that time, the way that the religious Jews interpreted the Old Testament and Paul was steeped in all of this, they viewed the law of Moses as something that had been provided by God as a means for us to keep, and then if we kind of kept it well enough, that one day we would end up, on the basis of our own virtue, uh, getting into heaven. And now here is the Holy Spirit comes into Paul's life, and this is Paul's understanding of salvation, and he's got to turn all of it on its head and caused Paul to come to realize that the law had been given, yes, in a minor part to keep God's people morally and physically safe in a morally and physically dangerous world, but it was given supremely in order to expose us as sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior and then come to provide, who has come to provide us with salvation and the forgiveness of sins that's received through faith in Him. And all of this is exactly what Jesus taught. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about Paul in terms of justification by faith or that salvation is a gift on the basis of faith alone. And they'll say, that's something that Paul came up with. You'll ne Jesus never taught any of that. The other apostles never taught any of that stuff. This is just something that Paul then, uh, you know, added as an appendage to Christianity. We don't have to take any of that seriously. And when you hear somebody say something like that, you have to understand that they are very ignorant of the Scriptures. And if that's you this morning, I'm sorry to offend you, but you're ignorant at least of the most famous verse in all of the Bible because Jesus taught the very same thing. It was exactly His understanding 
of salvation, that it was not through keeping the law of Moses, but that it was a gift from God received by faith in Him. John 3.16, Jesus declared, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever keeps the law of Moses shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know it doesn't say that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, trusts in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul didn't come up with something that was independent of the law and the prophets or of Jesus. Jesus Himself declared. Again, we could go many places, but in John chapter 5, verse 24, He said, Verily, verily, I say to you, He who hears My word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Paul would later write in this very same vein later in his life, in his great treatise on salvation, his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 3, he said, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul later wrote to the churches in Galatia, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, after we've become a Christian, we're no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under the law of Moses. The law of Moses has done its work in showing us to be sinners and in need of a Savior. We've come to Christ. The law no longer has that kind of a place within our lives. I like to picture the different scenes within the Bible, and I imagine Paul in Arabia. And, uh, and here he is in Arabia, and again, the relative desolateness of Arabia at that time, and he's poring over the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew them probably better than almost everyone in Jerusalem up to this time, but he had been taught them from a slant. He'd been taught them in a way that he was missing the whole main point of the law and the prophets. If you miss Jesus in the Bible, you've missed the Bible. So he understood all these things, but now he's got to relearn it. And you see him there in that distraction-free environment of the desert, and he's reading the Old Testament Scriptures again and again and again and again and again and over and over, and now he's getting an understanding of it that he never had before. And the reason that excites me is the Word of God is so alive to me. It has been all of my Christian life. And, uh, and I know you've had the same experience in your life as well. Remember, as a Christian, when you became a new Christian, I mean, before you become a Christian, somebody hands you the Bible and says, read this, it'll do you good. And <laughs> you turn to it, I can't make heads or tails out of this. Uh, I'm going to go get a Coke or go do something. I mean, there's just no life at all. And when you're in a certain age or whatever and, and you're reading it, you think, that book will, I'll never read it. I don't care about it, let alone the fact it will ever become the major influence of my life. It will be the one thing that I require and desire on a daily basis more than my physical food, and yet it becomes that when the Holy Spirit becomes in our lives. You remember when the Bible was all brand new to you and we didn't have to, as each of us do, have to fight with the curse of familiarity? 
on some aspects of the Bible, things that ought to have us jump up out of our seat and shout hallelujah now. We can find our mind drifting as these great themes and realities are being taught. But here in those early days of being a Christian, everything is new. Everything is exciting. I mean, everything within us, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, intended to be uh, lived in expression with God, relationship with God. And all of this stuff is being now set on fire by the Word of God. And this is his condition out there. Just Paul, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. And it's the same thing that God does through His Word in our lives. Just me, just you the Bible and the Holy Spirit, and what a dynamic it is. And what was going on inside of him was magnificent. Well, after the Arabia experience, we're told in verses 23 through 25 that he returned to Damascus. And his preaching ministry wasn't well received in Damascus now as he begins to preach in the synagogues there. And he's uh, so disrespected and so upsets the Jewish religious community there that they plan his assassination. This was something that would go on continually in Paul's life. I remember reading an old English bishop uh, who said, boy, wherever the apostle Paul went, he created a revolution. He said, everywhere I go, they serve me tea. And that's just kind of the way that it was with Paul. Everywhere he went, I mean, he's teaching Christ and teaching Jesus as the Christ, and it wasn't appreciated. This was no joke. This was no joke. These people were going to kill the Apostle Paul at the beginning of his ministry. And the danger is so great that some Christian owned a home on the wall of the city, which was the high, most expensive real estate in the city, and, and the door into your house would go into the inner of the city, and then on the wall side of your unit would be windows leading to the outside of the city. You'd be low, you could be lowered down from that window, and you'd be outside of the city. And they brought him in through the door and out through the window in order to save his life. The Apostle Paul here, it's, it's disciples, it's Christians that are looking out for him. I mean, he just seems to have no sense of danger or no sense of self-preservation. They're the ones that get him out of that situation. He's put into some kind of a basket, and he's lowered through that window down the wall, and he escapes, and we're told in verses 26 through 29 that from there he made his way to Jerusalem. And imagine this now, as we're just kind of putting some flesh and blood on what can look like just... Um, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, spare description. But remember, Paul now returns to Jerusalem at this point. The last time he left, he had orders from the religious leaders to go to Damascus and arrest Christians and bring them back in order to be tried and imprisoned in Jerusalem. They've probably heard something about his conversion, but they've never seen his face again. After a three-year absence, Paul now comes back into the city of, uh, of Jerusalem, and he tries to join the Christian community there and uh, in fellowship with the disciples, but they hold him at arm's length. Uh, they fear that he wasn't really born again, that this is a plot of some kind. He's a mole. He's trying to get in close to the apostles, find out the inner workings of what's going on. Then he'll have all of us arrested, and all of us will be uh, persecuted. And so they didn't trust him. They thought he was infiltrating the Christian community in, in Jerusalem. And some people 
They fault the apostles or the disciples here at this particular point on, on this issue, but persecuted minorities throughout history in the world have learned to be very, very careful about who they trust and who they don't trust and who they hold at arm's length. Christianity is a persecuted minority in Jerusalem at this time, and they're being very cautious for their own uh, safety. Paul wasn't offended by it. He knew he'd earned the reputation and, and, uh, as being a danger to Christians. And then as he's in this condition, he's been pushed back by Christians in the city. There's a man by the name of Barnabas. We ran into him initially in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. We'll read a lot more about him coming up. But he befriends Paul, and he takes the time to listen to him. What's your story? What's going on? Last we heard about you, you were doing this and everything, and now you're telling us this, what happened? And Paul tells him his conversion story. I was on minding my own business, just out killing Christians. And I was on the road to Damascus, and then Jesus appeared to me, and then this, and here's my conversion, and then this is what happened in Damascus, and I preached Jesus because I saw it finally in my own thinking that He was the Christ and that He was the Son of God, and then I had to escape from my life and out into Arabia. He tells the story to uh, Barnabas. Barnabas then tells it to the apostles, and Paul is allowed into that community now and in order to enjoy fellowship with them. Ultimately, Paul's teaching in Jerusalem then led to another attempt on his life, as we're told here, and thus for his own protection. Uh, the disciples, again, it seems like Paul would just stay and fight it out to the death wherever he was, but the disciples looked at Paul. They sent him away from Jerusalem, and they sent him uh, to Caesarea, beautiful. Now it's a ruin, but in those days it was a beautiful harbor and uh, Roman city on the Mediterranean Sea, got him on a boat, and sent him home to Tarsus in modern-day uh, Turkey, where Paul then remained for somewhere between seven and ten years without any biblical mention at all concerning him. It's just, he just goes silent. He goes dark, okay? And then something happens in the early church where Barnabas, as he's looking at this particular scene, I think it's in Acts chapter 11 when we come to it, something happens in the early church, and Barnabas thinks to himself, I know exactly the man for this situation. And he then travels to Tarsus, and he reunites with Paul, brings Paul then uh, to Antioch, and thus was the beginning of Paul's ministry as an apostle, and his life and his ministry will then dominate the rest of the book of Acts after that. In all of this, it fascinates me that God allowed ten long years to elapse between the time, and maybe as long as 13 years, from the time that Saul of Tarsus was born again and the day he formally began his public ministry. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you thought that Paul just, okay, this happened, he got saved, rode to Damascus, and then it was all, he just starts writing letters in the New Testament. Not that at all. period of 10 to 13 years where he just goes quiet and, and, uh, and has no impact at all. He's living in the city of Tarsus. You would have thought that God would have thrown him right in the middle of the fullness of his calling at that moment. 
Look at what we need. Now we, this is a celebrity within uh, Phariseeism. This is a, a Jewish religious leader. This is like having a Hollywood actor or actress come to faith, get them on the speaking circuit. I mean, we can get some mileage out of this. We can take some offerings associated with this. And then on a more serious vein, to just look at the needs within the early church, the persecution that was still going on, it looked like a moment that you wouldn't waste a moment of Paul's life, but that you would just thrust him right into the fullness of the, of the need of the hour and in his calling as an apostle. After all, Jesus himself called Paul a chosen vessel, and yet God didn't do it. God didn't do it. Instead, God spent 10 to 13 long years preparing him for the ministry that he would spend the rest of his life doing. And it teaches us that apparently even chosen vessels must be prepared. And this morning I want to close my sermon and our time by speaking to this subject of God's preparation in our lives. We live in a culture that undervalues preparation. It undervalues preparation. In fact, it undervalues preparation for the future to such a degree that it's insane what we're doing, and it's dangerous what we're doing. But the culture you and I live in all day, every day, is a culture that undervalues preparation. If for no other reason then it always involves time. We live in a very impatient culture. We live in a very hurried culture. We want what we want, and we want it right now. And examples abound in it from our own lives. We come up to a traffic light, and there it is. It turns red, and the cross-traffic turns green and the cars go, and if the cars are completely gone and there's no car coming and no car stop and we're held for two seconds by that red light, we notice it. Why doesn't that thing turn green? I mean, what are we paying for these sensors for and everything? I got things to do, and we notice it. We're an impatient culture, and it affects us. Every trip to the store that involves a checkout uh, is a part of a purchase, becomes a contest over who can pay and get out of the store the quickest. So we come into the store, and we've got our arms full of whatever it is that we're buying. We come near the cash registers, and we make this instantaneous assessment of which line immediately as a starting point is the shortest, and then which line will be the fastest. Which checker looks fast? Which checker looks slow? Which shopper looks fast? Which shopper looks uh, slow? The amount of merchandise in our competitors' carts in terms of what line they're getting into. And then when we make a decision to get into the line that we actually get into, we're not satisfied that we've assessed the situation properly. We now watch every other line to see whether we made the right choice and whether that line is moving faster than I'm moving. And why do I have a guy from Argentina? What's a guy from Argentina doing at Rayleigh's in Modesto? He's in front of me, and now they want three pieces of ID, and they want his passport. And 45 minutes later, I'm still standing there, and he's just trying to buy, you know, a roast beef sandwich. But we notice all of that. And, and that's the culture that we live in. And all time spent waiting is considered to be a waste of time. 
We are not a forward-looking culture anymore at all, and it's dangerous where we are. Our mindset is consumed with the right now. And you look at it. You look at our political policies as a nation. They do not any longer take into account 25 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. What will this decision have on the United States of America? They're made solely with the next election cycle in mind. And there's virtually no thought and certainly no dialogue to what the impact of our policies will have on the nation again 10 years from now, 25 years from now, 50 years from now. And the same thing is true of our monetary policy as a nation. It's tough to separate monetary policy from political policy these days, but it didn't always used to be that way. And there appears to be virtually no thought given to what's the best thing to do in terms of monetary policy in the long run? What's the impact of what we're doing right now, years going to be upon the nation years from now? And instead, it's all what's the easiest thing to do right now? What's the most painless thing to do right now? And what must be done in order to hold on to political power by winning the next election? And this is the, this is the compressed world that we live in. This is the absence of preparation and, our, and, and, and how uh, much resistant we are to it. It's all the here. It's all the now. And one of the things that a Christian needs to understand about God is that he's not impatient at all, and he is not in a hurry at all, because for him there are some things in life that are more important than speed. There are certain things in life that can't be hurried. There are certain things in life that take time. There are certain things in life that require preparation. Things like character. Things like godly character. Things like Christian maturity and Christ-likeness and a deep personal relationship with God and a deep understanding of the Word of God. And when God works in each of our lives today as Christians, and He works in our lives today, but at this moment in time, as He, in this 24 hours that you and I are involved in today, as He works in our life today, He's going to be doing two things at once. The one thing we will be painfully conscious of all 24 hours, but virtually ignorant of, the second thing virtually ignorant of, in that same 24-hour block. When God works in each of our lives, He'll do two things at once. First, He will be diligent and faithful to keep each of His promises to us concerning everything that we are facing today, that we are facing right now. But then on top of that, because He knows the future, He will also work to develop our character in our lives, the character that He knows that we're going to need in the future. And if I do not understand this about God, then we and I can become very, very frustrated with God and very frustrated with what He's, with what he's doing in my life and what He's allowing in my life. And it's easy for us without understanding that there is a 
preparation element of His work in our lives every day, then we will begin to look at our current circumstance just from the right now, and we will begin to ask questions, if not out loud, at least in our minds. Why is this happening to me? Why, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't need this. Why is God doing this to me? Nobody else I know is going through something like this. And a frustration occurs with the work of God in our lives. We need the character that our circumstances are producing in us. The problem is we can't see those circumstances yet. Only God does. God is working to prepare us for circumstances that He sees clearly in our future. But because we can't see those circumstances yet, His dealings in our life in the present tense, they confuse us. They don't make sense to us. But they make perfect sense to Him. And God is very faithful about making sure that we possess the godly character that we're going to require to successfully handle what He knows and fully understands is coming our way in the future. You take it on human terms, take it into the realm of not a heavenly father, but in the realm of an earthly parent. No human parent is being successful in that role if they are not both preparing their child not only for what they know that that individual day is going to hold in that child's life, that is the micro, but also preparing them for the macro of life, also preparing them for adult life in this world that they are heading into and preparing them with the character and the skills that they're going to need in order to successfully navigate an adult world. And if they don't do that, then their child is going to go into adult life completely unprepared and then will end up getting swallowed alive. And what we fail to recognize any long, longer, in, at least in an adequate uh, degree, is that preparation is serious business. Preparation is vitally important. It is not a waste of time at all, and God takes it very seriously. And everywhere you look in life, you see the need for preparation and training in order to be successful. And then beyond that, you see the greater the goal a person has in their life, the greater the thing that it is that they're aiming at, the influence that they want to have in the world, the greater the thing that they want to do, that the greater the preparation that is needed for that person. If a person has no goals in life, they don't care about life, they don't want to accomplish anything in life, well, preparation for that is a cinch. But someone who wants to make a difference for God, someone who wants to be an influence for God, someone who wants to live a life that allows the world to see a different kind of life and be attracted to Christ themselves, that requires preparation. Preparation is required everywhere in life. I think about the professional athlete. You choose any choice that you want uh, to choose to examine. Any sport that is a fascination to you, and you see that athlete, male or female, on that field or on that court of competition, and when you look at them, you realize hours and hours and months and years and years and years went into that person being able to do the things that I'm witnessing them doing. They could never do it 
without preparation. You take it into the realm of the military and the training for a soldier. Without training and preparation, they'll have no hope for survival. I think about medical doctors. I think especially about surgeons. And you think about the years of preparation that go into their lives before they're ready to begin their practice. Imagine what damage they would do without uh, preparation. Same thing is true of a carpenter or an auto mechanic. Everywhere you see healthy success and influence for good in life, preparation is required. And the same thing is true of God's work. And I think about Joseph in the Old Testament. His name is synonymous with, with preparation. And here he is, God gives him visions that he's going to be great one day. He's a young man. That one day he's going to excel all of his brothers. And that one day they will even bow down to him. And ultimately it all comes to pass as the Lord promoted him to become the second most powerful person in the entire world at that time, second only to Pharaoh himself in terms of pure power, but it involved long years of a very difficult preparation that God put him through so that he would be able to not only become the second most powerful man in the world, but have the godly character to not only survive the temptations of Egypt, but then to be an influence for God and the history of God's people. He had to be prepared for all of it, and God spent years preparing him for that. I think of Moses, and here he's called by God to deliver his people, God's people, from the bondage of Egypt. Eighty years of preparation in that, forty of it in Egypt, to know the ins and outs of Egypt, forty years out in the desert, the second third of his life. And what does he do in preparation for one day leading the children of Israel out of, uh, of Egypt and then to the promised land? He spends forty years in the wilderness wander, wandering around and shepherding not his own sheep, but his father-in-law's sheep all in preparation for the day that one day God would entrust his flock to Moses to then herd them around in that wilderness for 40 years. And the preparation could not have been more perfect, but Moses couldn't have made heads or tails of it for the 80 years that preceded the calling to then step into it. But when he did, God made sure that he was prepared for it. I think of King David anointed as young boy to be the next king of Israel to follow Saul. And he would become the king at 30 years of age, but he'd go through this 10-year period of, of tremendous hardship, preparation going on in his life, so that one day he became, when he became the king of Israel, it wouldn't be just bequeathing him with all of this power, but he would have the godly character then to be successful in that calling and in that environment. And during the time of preparation in each of the lives of these men, it looked for a moment in time, in fact, for long years of their life, as if all of life was unfair, as if it was working against them, as if God had forgotten them, as if God was failing to keep His promises to them. And yet in each case, time would reveal that God's preparation was perfect. It was exactly what they needed in order to be successful in the things that He had planned for them and that nothing was being wasted. 
and what is true of them concerning God's plan for their life and what was true of Paul is also true of us. God is always working in our lives today, not only with today in mind, that dominates us, but also to prepare us and our character for what He knows is coming our way in the future. And such preparation can be very, very hard, and it can be very, very confusing at times, very confusing, because at the moment you don't know why do I have to go through this God. But always remember that there is something harder than God's work of preparation in our lives, and His work of preparation can be very hard. And that is, would be to ultimately find ourselves in that future season, in that place where God has called us to, unprepared for it. And God loves us too much to ever allow that to happen. Preparation of our lives and of our character is a loving and intimate work of our Heavenly Father. And if He didn't love us, He'd just say, forget it. It's not worth the aggravation of hearing you squawk every day. Then you just made your bed. You can lie in it. But I know what's coming in five years. But He never does it. He never does it. Would you, if you find yourself in that confusing time in your life and you're trying to process it just in blocks of 24 hours, and it doesn't make any sense that this would come into your life or this trial or this situation or this person or this thing that stretches you so mightily. Would you embrace and internalize this great truth into your heart and into your spirit today in whatever difficult circumstance you're facing? You're being prepared. You're being prepared every day you are being prepared as a Christian life is not just about the 24 hours that we exist in God is constantly preparing us for the future that he knows is coming and whatever your circumstances no matter how confusing they might be no matter how unfair they might seem your life isn't out of control but Christian maturity is being developed in you. And it's probably being developed in you in the only way that it can. And sometimes that's a very difficult circumstance. But God is developing a character in your life that He knows you're desperately going to need one day. And that that day is coming, as sure as you're sitting in this room today. That day is coming. And when that day comes, you will be very thankful and very glad for his gracious work of preparation in your life. You'll see. You'll see. But you need to know it and you need to believe it today. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Father, thank you for your word. We turn to it. We don't know what we're going to find in it. Thank you that you tell us all of the things that we so desperately need to hear that nobody else is talking about anymore. And thank you for this word from your word today of the importance and of the necessity of preparation. Thank you for the perspective that it brings to our life. Thank you for the hope that it brings to our lives, Lord, the peace that it brings to our lives, the relative understanding that it brings to our lives. And I pray and we pray, Lord, as a church family, for each man and woman, you see the privacy of their heart, the confusion that is there, the sense of injustice, the sense that you're being unfair, that you're not being faithful to them, you're not keeping the promises, you're pushing them too far, you're pushing them too hard, Lord. All these things that we can feel. And we pray that you would use the lesson of this passage this morning to calm them and to rebuild faith and to help them and us, Lord, regain perspective. We bless you this morning for your Father's heart that you do not do what so many do today, and that is do the easiest thing that can be done but you're willing to do the hard thing, but the good thing and the right thing in our lives. We bless you for that this morning. And we bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.